Do you think other podcasters drink a lot when they record? They do, right? Yeah. Yeah. All the cool, yeah. all the cool ones, um, all the cool ones drink and smoke while they record. You can mm-hmm. hear it. Yeah, the best podcast. There's like a little like big lighter sound every like ten minutes. Yeah. I need. But that. those are the podcasts that no one is listening to anymore. Yeah, the numbers mm-hmm. are down. The stats are yeah. in, folks. The, the pods are tanking. Now that uh, everyone can smoke and drink all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, is that just because is it because people only listen to podcasts when they commute i think that's a huge think, part of it but i would think people would be home putting that shit on like while they're i don't know working from home yeah people only want to listen to papa cuomo well that was all good material for the intro to episode 87 of uh of the work from home fashion customer service uh podcast from um from GQ's very own crack team of style wizards, Noah, Sam, and Rachel. Everyone's hydrating. Everyone is slurping their hydration juice. And um, and uh, none of us are wearing masks because um, we're home where we should be. And, and um, but, but boy, are the masks getting made. People are out there making the masks. Or are they? Or are they? And what are they doing with them? And why are they making them? All these questions and more can be answered by Rachel on GQ.com. It's true. Rachel, but seriously, the mask thing is crazy, right? Like, well, yeah. Why is, so, what's, what's really going on with the masks? I want to know. Okay. So, well, last week when a lot of companies started announcing that they were making these masks, I was like, this is this is kind of crazy. Like, are these masks like really medical grade masks? Can they really be that helpful? Are they really like, you know, do, like don't masks need to be approved by either the FDA or, you know, follow some kind of the guidelines from the CDC? And a lot of these masks were like that I was seeing, at least on Instagram, just didn't look like like they looked like a nice, like good homemade effort, but they didn't look like super professional to me. Right. And I also thought this is like kind of ridiculous that like, why isn't this like an organized effort for people to be like making these masks? Like it seems like kind of everyone was like doing things on their own, kind of like operating under their own assumptions. So I tracked down like a couple of different people who were making masks. Like I talked to a couple of designers and manufacturers. um, And I also talked to like the CFDA and uh, was chatting as well with like Andrew Cuomo's office And it's just kind of like a disorganized chaos to make these masks. And two things primarily are happening. One is that like, you know, the frustrating thing is like, if you look at at what's happening in Europe, you know, LVMH and Caring and like Prada have all turned over like a lot of factory space to making these like masks and gowns and like all of this, what's called personal protective equipment, which does have to be like, like it has to meet certain like guidelines and be made out of like certain materials. And, you know, in Europe, you're able to do those kinds of things because these companies own these like huge factories that are within the countries in which they like are corporatized. So yeah, so the, so the one thing is that that's sort of like different between what is happening in the United States versus like what's happening in Europe, where they were sort of, it seemed like companies were so quickly able to like organize and get these masks made, which are being delivered like within the next couple of weeks. There are these like huge um, 
factory systems. So like LVMH obviously has like access to all these factories, most of which, not all of which, but many of which like exist in France. Whereas in the United right. States for the most part over the past, like, and this is something that's like especially true. I mean, well, it's, it's like especially true of women's wear, but it's true of men's wear as well. Like most manufacturing at this point is now outsourced to other companies. And one of the designers I was talking to said something really interesting, which is like, and I'm sure other designers you guys have spoken to have said the same thing, like fashion designers and people who work in fashion could actually see the pandemic moving in like real time better than any other industry because mm. a lot of designers get their samples made in China. Yeah. And then you get your linings and fabrics are sourced in Italy. So like actually the, the like global movement of a garment, like the way that it's, if something is like designed in America, but made abroad, like it actually follows the track of the, that the virus has moved globally thus far, which is like kind of a scary way to think about it. Um, so like a lot of people who are trying to make masks, like can't really, uh, they don't really have access to like large scale factories in that way. So they're sort of like yeah. utilizing these like smaller sewing rooms. And then of course, the other big problem is that like Donald Trump refuses to implement, well, he sort of is doing it now, but like not really um, implement the Defense Production Act, which would force these like larger factories to kind of turn uh, turn themselves over to to the production of things like masks and gowns and ventilators and like other um, like medical equipment that's really needed at this time. Right, right. But so one big problem is that Cuomo is saying like we need masks, we need masks, we need we need masks, and then the designers are saying okay, we're going to do it, and then the lines of communication were like pretty confused between yeah. these designers who were like setting you know. High, like keeping their like 10 sewers on to like make uh make extra masks and stuff and the governor's office who you know it's easy to like send a tweet that says okay we need help and it's harder to like actually fulfill you know to like uh actually like create this some sort of like procurement vehicle mm -hmm. to like make that happen also if you have like 10 people making masks i mean probably in the span of two days, like based on the designers I spoke to, you could probably make like 500 to 700 masks, but they would be made out of cotton. Mm -hmm. And that really doesn't do anything to like- yeah, that, that was my big the, question. Stop the uh, spread of the virus. So, and then, so of course, like the problem that would be solved by there being some kind of like larger organizational effort or just like more kind of knowledge around like what, kinds of like things are needed right now is that like a lot of designers just don't have access to these fabrics and some of the ones yeah. who are which are like these like kind of more plastic kind medical of medical grade fabrics yeah medical yeah. grade fabrics and so they're like like one manufacturer was telling me that she's been like going calling all these different sort of vendors who sell this kind of material and they like are locked into these contracts with like other sorts of suppliers yeah. and manufacturers and like can't sell to them so it's kind of a, it's a lot more complicated, I think, than, I mean, I just, you see so many people and I don't, like, don't, it's, it's not nothing to like knock on the designers or anything, but it's like, you see, like, like I saw yesterday, this one designer shared this um, image of these like chintz printed masks, like, yeah. like Laura Ashley kind of Batsheva style fabrics. And I was like, that's really, that's very sweet. And I like, the gesture is like really from the right place, but it's like, is that really like the most, the, 
the way that they can be most helpful right now? Or is there some way that like a larger organization to sort of help these people be more effective in what they're trying to do? Well, the potential opportunity is huge, right? Because it gives these a lot of small and independent fashion businesses an opportunity to keep working, to pay their employees mm-hmm. and to make, to generate some revenue in uncertain times. And, and it's a, a chance for them to do something that's actually going to help, like truly mm-hmm. genuinely going to help. There's this shortage and, and they can provide, but uh, it's, it's, it seemed so wild that so many people were like leaping into action without really, without any of this clarity. And the thing that, I just kept wondering was like, but don't you need like medical grade materials? And like, what pattern are you guys using? And are your sewing rooms are even like sterile environments? Like, mm-hmm. I, I just, it, I just could not imagine how um, these things would be effective because you, you hear so much about how to an effective, the N95 masks are the only mm-hmm. truly effective masks uh, for, for, um, Stopping the spread of the virus. Yeah, stopping the spread of the virus. So there was that sort of piece of it. And um, it just seems like now, soon we're going to have this abundance of like cloth, like scrap cloth masks that I guess are are no, are considered last resort sort of mm-hmm. options, which um unclear what that really means. I mean, I guess what it means is if there's nothing else, use this, but also like, does that just mean like it doesn't actually do anything except sort of create the illusion of, of a, a barrier? Yeah. yeah. That, that is essentially like what it does. And, the, the, the and it other stops you from issue, touching your face, which right, I think is important. It stops you from touching your face. I mean, the, the other thing though that, that is just a problem from a, the designer's point of view is that the FDA can't but like a hospital can't pay for a mask that's not FDA approved. Right. And these masks would not be FDA approved because of what yeah. you just outlined. So yeah. it's still like happening at the expense of the designer to right. like produce these things. Yeah. I want Emily Bodie to make me a mask. Yeah, I know. It's funny because a cloth mask has been like a part of fashion culture, especially in the East for like a long time, right? I mean, like you see... You don't see them in the U.S. so much, but in the rest of the world, in cities, you see lots of young people wearing masks. I mean, all kinds of people, but like, you see kids wear them, sort of as fashiony. Sort of. I always wonder in about, about cities that. in like China and Japan and like Vietnam. You know, you can. There's a lot of places that sell like bootleg cotton, like vape masks you know yeah the bape mask the bape mask is like that i feel like that was like the first kind of fashion mask that i really noticed everywhere yeah Yeah. and i think it's like in a ton of street style photographs yeah and i mean it's worn like i think the practical reason for like the streetwear mask to the extent that it is practical it's like an anti-pollution thing if you're like riding around on a motorbike you just like don't want like shit like going directly into your mouth it does make you think uh you guys were saying that uh, one one actual useful thing about a mask, regardless of whether or not it's uh, up to medical grade quality, is that it prevents you from touching your face. And it's just things like that. I, it makes you, you know, like how aware are we going to be of that in 18 months from now? You know, like, like maybe, maybe a mask or a face covering will, maybe people will be using them. 
more often. Do you see that happening Maybe. in New York, in, in New York, LA, in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think that one like long potential long-term implication of uh, this of the coronavirus crisis is there's just going to be like a much uh, I think I think we like America as like a society is going to be much more aware of how you know how viruses spread and like um, I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis placed on public hygiene and I think this happened like we saw this in Asia after SARS like um, in Hong Kong especially like it became like a very you know the everything sort of reorganized around this idea of like public cleanliness. And I think like people wearing masks pretty regularly on like public transportation and um, using hand sanitizer, you know, like pretty constantly. And like, there's always like, you know, there's always like hand sanitizer available in different places. Um, I mean, I think that was like one result of, you know, a massive like public health crisis like SARS. So I could see that happening in um, probably not all across America, but definitely in like New York. I think people are like pretty, rightly uh concerned now yeah um like you're just not like even like going to like your bodega if it's still open without thinking about it um and i don't think that's going to change for a long time no it's like how our grandparents who survived the great depression like keep all their cash in a mattress we are for the rest of our lives going to be uh washing our hands constantly um not touching our faces and wearing bootleg vape masks like I think I'm just going to start, I'm going to start running the, um, like those gators, like those lightweight, like fly fishing gators, you know, like when you go fly mm-hmm. fishing in the summer, the yeah. sun is so intense and the sun's reflection off the water is so intense. You can like burn the inside of your nostrils from the sun. So fly fishermen cover their, their entire body. So they wear like these white gloves and these full like neck gators, super lightweight, um, uh, what do you call it? UPS? What do you call sun protection? SPF. <laughs> US, USB? DHL. They, yeah. they, they wear uh, DHL protection uh, sun masks. Yeah, so anyway, I'm going to start running the full gator. Um, I yeah. think more more coverage in general. Fewer handshakes. I don't think I'll ever shake anyone's hand again. I don't see why I would. You should um, start the tip, of the, tip of the hat. <laughs> tip of the hat. Tip of the fedora. Uh-huh. Yeah, South to West 8 is going to be popping after this yeah the nepenthes fly fishing brand mm-hmm. they were ahead of the curve on this one remember that like that like gauzy net yeah thing that they made like a full mm-hmm. body like mosquito beekeeping net. mosquito yeah. uniform mm-hmm. thing that was sick yeah that was yeah like like Might mosquito to, protection yeah if anyone has one on well, grail let me know obviously the um situation changing rapidly um that was a great story rachel rachel's piece yeah really made i mean it's just so nice to read something specific and clear um that has some real answers so thanks for that there's so much so much happening so fast i feel like i end up with so many more questions you know about every everything and the mask thing was a big one i was just like seeing these masks and i'm like but that like you make shirts with that fabric. I don't. And then I heard some people saying that if you, if you are going to use any type of homemade mask, that cotton is actually the best to use. And that somehow the virus is less likely to that, that synthetic fabrics are actually worse and that the, the virus would cling longer or exists easier on synthetic fabrics. And it's just like, I mean, who, you know, who fucking knows? It doesn't have to do from, from what I learned when I was, 
reporting this, like it doesn't have to do with whether or not something is synthetic. It actually has to do with the porousness of the fabric. Yeah. So whether or not something is like woven super tightly. So if you like look at the N95 mask, it's like not even made out of a woven material. Right. It's made out of this super dense, like kind of soft, but like molded sort of material that like molds yeah. to your face. Whereas like even a surgical mask is like, it's not a woven fabric. It's kind of like a, a soft plastic. Yeah. Ralph Lauren got in on the action. Yeah. He's got masks and yeah, gowns on the way. way. Um, it was nice to see finally some American, I mean, there was a slow, I guess, naturally in Italy, the amount of time it took the Italian and and France, the amount of time it took them to really get in action was probably about the same as it took the American brands. But for a while, I think we were all like, where are the, where the American giants of, of apparel manufacturing now when we need, uh, this specialized apparel. But as you pointed out, what is, what something like 3% of American fashion is made in America now, mm-hmm. which is um, probably not great. What do you, what do you guys think are some uh, things that will change in the fashion industry once this is all over? I saw that some people have been maybe not theorizing, but at least hoping that this will lead to a resurgence in local uh, or I guess regional manufacturing Um I'm not sure why that would, I guess that would be a response to like the disruption of the supply chain that's happened Mm -hmm. through this whole, like, like Rachel said, because this started in China where so many brands get their samples made and then hit Italy where a lot of brands are based and a lot of luxury manufacturing is happening um, or happens. Fashion has, was one of the earliest like industries to really get hit. I mean, I guess everyone makes stuff in China now, but fashion felt the ripple effect of like, supply chains being basically fucked um, starting in like February. Um, whereas like a GM or something uh, which that because makes cars fashion? in America, like wasn't, uh, didn't have to shut down until I guess mm-hmm. more recently. Um, is, is fashion like the fastest moving industry in that sense? Like, is that, is that because the rate that like a, a sample, let's say goes from like enters the production cycle in China to when it's delivered to the company that ordered it is that's probably faster than almost anything else. Right. I mean like any type of electronic or, I mean, so many other things would just take longer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I guess it depends. I mean, I think if you, if you have like a wholly owned, like vertically integrated manufacturing uh, process, then you can make stuff pretty quickly. But if you like make stuff in like the decentralized way that I think a lot of brands do where like zippers are coming from one place and like buttons are coming yeah. from another and fabric is being shipped from one put from uh, you know, a mill to a supplier to a factory. Um, then I think it's a pretty, you know, I think the process is involves a lot of moving parts and ends up being slowed down as a result. And I think that because so many things are made from component parts that come from different parts of the world um, and that, you know, that all stops if like basically like shipping is disrupted, you know, like it can stop because of bad weather. So I think there's probably some people, some designers or brands out there who are thinking, okay, how do we control this? Um, and and it, I guess keep our supply chain like less um, or make it, make our supply chain less complicated so that, um, you know, some destabilizing event like this doesn't completely like shut things down right away. Well, it does seem like those, those who are set up to do that will benefit first 
you know, when things start to rebound, they'll be right there. But not, I mean, not everyone, not everyone is set up to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't just, I mean, it, it would be nice if, if more regional manufacturing is a longer term result. If, if people see the need for that and, um, and we start to see those industries being built back up. But currently, as it stands, a lot of the factories are just gone. You know, New York City's garment district has just been decimated. And you can't really rebuild it because there's luxury condos there now, you know. And, right. Um, but um, it's but it's also a cost thing, too. I mean, the reason yeah. why, like, it's not just fast fashion brands that get things made in China and India and Bangladesh. Like, every like fashion brands at every level now have their manufacturing done in those three countries because the quality of the manufacturing is very high. There's an extreme speed with which the factories can produce things and like turn things around there. Um, And it's like less expensive, you know, like I think more and more uh, brands started to sort of move their manufacturing out of the country in which they were based and like into these three other countries primarily because they were like, oh, this is a cost cost saving thing, but also like the quality is still pretty good. You know, like it's not like, like there are these kinds of stories about, or not like stories, but these realities about fast fashion and manufacturing, which is like, you know, this stuff is like not well made and it's made quite unethically and the laborers are underpaid, but there are some places where you know the quality is better even if the labor is still not quite uh like as done with the ethics that it should be yeah i mean i I know designers who like even if the cost was equal would rather make clothing in china than in italy because the after these decades of like um investment in you know chinese factories and stuff the quality is just better they can yeah. just be more precise. They can make stuff at a much higher level than you can get in places like America or Italy where like every, you know, so much is, has, so much manufacturing has fled to China that like, there's just no, it's like what you said, no, like structurally, like you can't just decide, okay, I'm going to start making stuff in America now that this is all over because it's just not, it's just not there anymore. So it is, it's obviously like a much longer, like there's a much longer like lead time to any of this changing. Um, yeah. But I do still wonder if if that will be like a goal that some, you know, it like it might just take like like a Ralph Lauren or a, a Calvin Klein or like some big American brand to say, okay, this is like a big priority for us. Another potentially big major change that I could see happening or hope would happen would just be that all designers and brands, big and small, take an opportunity to rethink how they sell, present, and distribute their collections, basically, like the whole seasonal system, which you hear designers complain about all the time. I don't really care. I mean, I know designers have too much to do. I do believe there's just too much clothes and too much, too many collections. But, um, you know, to me, ultimately, it doesn't make much of a difference. But you hear designers complain about burnout constantly, especially those that work at more Mm -hmm. than one, you know, those who work, for their own brand and another brand and they do men's and they do women's and they do this fall and spring and they do resort and, and cruise and everything else. Um, but what I think would just be more interesting would be if, if every designer and brand sort of invented or created their own season, their own sense, their own, um, 
timeline, you know, when things are shown and how they're shown and when things are available to buy and how they're available to buy. I just think like there's room for all of that just to be rethought. And if everything grounds to a halt, once things start up again, there could be an opportunity to really look at like, Hey, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Is this, is all of this really intentional? Is this just to keep up with the pace of the industry and whatnot? Because I think we would all really benefit from that because you would, um, you would just have more room for sort of creativity and, originality i think more opportunity for brands to distinguish themselves like i just think things could get broken up a little bit i guess is what i'm saying kind of i don't know it's that's a very vague notion but in the short term uh paris fashion week men's just got it was just announced that um it's the june edition is canceled milan fashion week men's in june is being moved to september to run concurrently with women's I mean, like the short term or medium term, like those, you know, Paris Fashion Week will like continue to happen. I think like cruise and resort and all these shows that have become this like, you know, massive, massively expensive um, operations that big brands uh, now do twice a year um, in between the other seasons. I think those are definitely going to like maybe not entirely, but mostly go away. Um, well, the collections, will, the collections will still be around, but yeah, I just like if if a result of this was that the fashion industry made thirty percent less stuff for a year, let's say, I think everyone would agree that would be good. Except, you know, there's that there would be a lot of economic implication there and and whatnot. But let's just say, making less stuff probably not a bad thing generally. The way yeah. the way the way we've been going. Like, what would that then look like? What would 30% less stuff kind of look like? Like, how would that manifest um, in the marketplace and in show season and all that shit? And and what if that also happened as designers just broke away from these fashion weeks because they decided, well, like, well, you know, moving this here or skipping this was good or we don't want to do it that way. Yeah, I just think there should just be total fashion anarchy. I think there should be total fashion anarchy too. I mean, the fact that like I love looking at these things, like I love looking at fashion shows. I actually like going to fashion shows. And the fact that like when I go to like a fashion week, when I travel to go these things and there are things that I'm like, I don't know what that is or I want to skip that or that's boring. Like that's a big problem. Like that's crazy. Cause like I will go to like, I mean, the bar is pretty low for me. And so the fact, that, the fact that like there are so many things that like there are all these brands that like I've never heard of like one time like you know what seems like a thousand years ago like Noah and I were having lunch and we were like walking around in Tribeca and we walked past these three stores and we were like what are those brands like we've never yeah. heard of those brands before yeah. that like we're the people who are like supposed to know those things like yeah. there is just way like it is like insane to me like how much uh like pointless things there, how many pointless things there are that the world would be fine without. I think my concern is that like, when you talk about like that 30% less stuff, that's going to be like the small people who are not going to be able to show things, you know? Yeah. Like my, like, I think that I agree with you. Like, I think the thing to do is like break away from all of that and like do things very much in your own way at your own pace. Because I also think people just like aren't responding as much anymore to the kind of like big marketing uh, yeah. like apparatus behind a brand that like does a lot less for people now. 
And of course, I there's, I can... reasons, uh, there's reasons why the schedules are the way they are, right? There's buying mm-hmm. seasons. Like you have to, you have to be there when the department stores are there and they place big orders and they keep your business afloat. But, you know, increasingly that's changing. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of designers would say that I, that what we're, I'm suggesting is insane and you wouldn't be able to run a business that way. And it's probably true, but if everything comes to, you know, no one saw this, no one ever expected everything just to come to a complete halt for who knows how many months and it's going to have to restart again. And it doesn't have to restart and be exactly the way it was before. Yeah. I, I don't, I also think that, um, I just, you're right that like, you know, there are a lot of designers who would say like, it's crazy. You like can't do it that way. Or like there can't be less stuff or like we need these cruise collections or da, 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 da. But for a really long time, like that is how the industry worked. Like it's only in the past like 10 or 15 years that there's been this like enormous amount of like shows and all these sort of like extra seasons that have been added. And it's like, if the stuff that actually sells is the stuff that you show at a different time outside of fashion week, then like we should figure out some way to either move fashion week so that it corresponds to that sales schedule. I don't know. This is all like kind of, I feel like this, I'm getting really, I'm getting, yeah, I was going to say, I'm getting really upset about like a schedule, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, um, I guess my, like, I would just want, uh, I hope that people just get really like, like a lot of times we, because, because we live in this like binge purge culture, like when people rethink anything rather than like recalibrating their lives, they just move in the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes like very reactive. And I just hope that everyone like, uh, just sort of like rethinks like how they buy things and like what they think is cool and interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like totally. And not even in that way where it's like from now on, like I only care about stuff being sustainable, but like thinking about like what you actually like instead of like of what a brand like tells you you should like, or like what a bunch of people are like putting on Instagram. Yeah. 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 And who are the designers that are making important, doing important work right now that's worth that's worth it, you know, worth investing in essentially and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. And we should talk about archival fashion in a second. Cause I think that sort of ties into uh, the archival fashion movement. But I, another thing I think worth wondering is like, are we going to see a bunch of collections? This is such an obvious question. I, I sort of hate to ask it, but like, are we going to see a bunch of sort of uh, pandemic collections over the next 18 months? You know, I mean, we all like Maureen Sayre very much and, and she, um, her collections have have always had an apocalyptic vibe. That's kind of her project. Um, she made pollution masks and things like that that you could easily see um, being uh, kind of reappropriated for this moment, which I don't think she was anticipating a global virus pandemic necessarily, but something like it maybe. Um, but yeah, are we all going to, you know, how is this going to, what's the vibe going to be um, based on this, assuming that we have, you know, collections that will be made in these next three months that will, we'll I see. Mean, I hope not. I hope, I hope that, I hope that, uh, you don't want you know, everything to the clothes that are being made that are being designed in now and in the next, you know, in the, in the period where this, where we're all under this like cloud, I hope that they're more forward looking than tied to the current moment. Um, I think when we're all out of this, we're not going to want to like, you know, be dressing in uh, the pandemic collections. I think we're all we're all in the pandemic collection right now. Except for the fact that you know, 
the next the next virus is just around the corner. Don't you want to be ready next time? I do not look ready to you. I mean, the thing, yeah, the thing that's about Marine Sarah that I think is so interesting is one is that she is a very young person. So for her, I think that is a very, um, her work is a really like honest expression of what she's thinking about all the time. Because as we know, like young people, I think, think about, uh, you know, politics and globalization the environmental crisis in a much more like urgent way than maybe like older generations do. So I think, I don't know. I I think like her, her stuff is like not cynical. Like it's not trying to like capitalize on the moment in any particular way. And it's so like optimistic. Like a lot of it is about, okay. Like, like the beginning of the show is always like the world has just ended, but like we're the survivors and your dog needs a coat. You know, it's like, (laughs) So, so I think there is like this kind of like optimism in what she does. And I think like other designers do too. I mean, I was thinking also about like, no, I was reading your Evan Kenori piece and like his thing is really optimistic in, in that way too, you know, with like charting this kind of different path for how we make things, but also like how we buy things and how we like yeah. think about what we buy and what we want and at what pace. Yeah. Noah, let's talk about your archive fashion story. Yeah, so this was the thing I wanted to do for a, a long time and couldn't really figure out um, because, you know, the, men, the, the world of men's archival fashion is kind of uh, difficult to navigate. It's basically run by a bunch of goons on Grailed and um, Instagram. And, um, you know, there, there's... It, it, and and so I had been sort of trying to pitch something to GQ and we'd been talking about an idea. And anyway, I finally sort of wrapped my head around like this, this, what I think of as this golden age of menswear and from the eighties to the early two thousands um, where men's men's designers made clothing for men using all the creativity and resources and skill and craft that women's fashion designers had always been doing. And um, it's not that it didn't exist before that necessarily, but it was just sort of like there was tailoring and there was, there was different versions of it, but um, Komi Garçon and Yoji Yamamoto and Isimiyaki were kind of early to really, really think of menswear as actual fashion. And then, um, you know, that made way for Helmut Lang and Raph Simmons and Eddie Slimane and Margiela. Um, so anyway, I, I like kind of dove into that world and tried to, tried to identify the designers and the collections and the pieces and find them and get them in the office and have them photographed and talk to the kids who are collecting them who were super interesting and, and open and happy to chat. And they were really just enthusiasts. These weren't like high-end archivists, although we did work with David Cassavant, who has a more sophisticated operation. And uh, not that they're unsophisticated, but, you know, this isn't like, they're not like couture archivists. This isn't like the Met Costume Institute necessarily, although some of these pieces are there um, in their collection as well. So, yeah, it was kind of a big beast, and it turned into this big magazine feature that went online this week. And it really came from my heavy interest in in shopping and buying and just looking into these, especially nineties collections that, you know, 
really hold up. How did you um, narrow down uh, or how did you hone in on the, it's 10, 10 things we ended up shooting, right? Yeah. Um, how did you hone in on those 10 items specifically out of like the just, you know, hundreds and thousands of items from even just from those like 10 collections that are out there? Well, it, it was pretty, to me, it was pretty obvious. And I would, you know, if there's feedback, I'd love to hear it, but about who, who the designers were to include. Um, mm. There weren't many, there weren't many that were like maybes that didn't make it in here. I mean, helmet and uh, uh, Gautier's on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tom Ford for Gucci was one, which um, that was a, that was a tricky one. Uh, and, tricky how? Well, there's not a ton of it out there. Uh-huh. The Tom Ford Gucci, the Gucci stuff. It's just not as well like collected as some of this other stuff is. Like mm-hmm. people are really collecting Yoji. People are really collecting Comb, obviously, the Raf thing and Raf and Helmet and Dior. Um Eddie Slamane, people really collect. But um I just found the Tom Ford Gucci stuff a little harder to come by, but it still felt important. I didn't want everything to just kind of be in like the cult realm, like just, just to show like an array. Um, anyway, so once I sort of figured out the designers, I just, I just really just had a lot of conversations with people that are collecting this stuff and, and started just asking people like, well, what are the, you know, what are the most important collections that they, that these designers made and and then looking at those pieces. And some of it was based on what's most desirable. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just like my opinion of what the best pieces are. It was really talking to collectors and figuring out like what's really in high demand. And, um, and how does that happen though? Like how does someone decide like, wait, this is the like Issey Miyake collection that we should all be focusing on. Like who is that person who's deciding that? And like, how does that sort of spread? Well, some of it is like there's certain collections you just look at certain pieces. I should say you just look at and you just know that they like really into this fashion world. So like yeah. a lot of this is Miyake stuff is like made from heavy nylon and is super tactical. And it really looks like, I mean, yeah, you could just name, name your favorite current European fashion designer collection and, and um, there's echoes of it there. So I think some of it's like these pieces just, they kind of make themselves known. And then a huge part of it has just been like the, the hip hop world, frankly, like Lil Uzi Vert and other rappers who have, who have sourced this stuff from a lot of the guys that I worked with for this story and they've worn it. And it, so it gives the pieces that sort of mm-hmm. like uh, a little bit of like historical pop cultural context. And that, that certainly helps um, the yeah, price. I like, but I like how your piece got into, um, how Uzi really like moved the market for uh, vintage Gautier stuff. Um, and when I talked to him for a piece for GQ last October, he said that like discovering archival was like a huge step in his personal style journey. He was like, yeah. okay, I got the current brands. Wait, now there's all this archival stuff I have to do. Like I have to yeah. get into like shit. Okay. Let me, let me like get into that stuff. Um, and I think, I think like the, the surge and all this is sort of a testament to how much like, you know, how, how much access there is and how there's a store in any city that's like stocked with like Prada these days. So when you really want something that like no one else can have, what are you going to look at? But like, 
you know, trying to get this like archival Issei bomber that like, you know, there might only be like five really pristine versions of that you could even be able to buy. Yeah. And then you start to, you know, you might start there and then you start hunting it down and you realize like, Oh, like Issei Miyake was really like really great from 97 to 2003. Like you just, mm-hmm. you can just tell. And uh, I'm making, I, I, I vaguely think that's true. Or that was kind of how I felt. Someone might have a different opinion about that. And then you just start looking for pieces from those collections. And you might start trying to track down runway images. And then you start to realize what's really scarce. Yeah, I was looking for this pair of Issey Miyake flight pants forever. And it turns out they're like super rare. And I've, I've like talked to some of these guys about trying to find a pair. And I, I haven't come by them yet. So, And then there's other things that like aren't as strong. Like there's like so tons of Issey Miyake knitwear on Etsy and Grailed and eBay. That's just like not great. And um, in my opinion, you know, so anyway, you just kind of like, the more you learn, the more you realize like, what's the good stuff? When is it from? Like, what are you really looking for? Um, Yeah. So you just learn as you go. It's like anything, you know, Um, I'm by no means an expert, but learn just enough. And I've still only just bought a couple pieces myself that I'm really into. Some of it goes back to, actually, I wanted to, I wanted to shout out, this store in Berlin called Towns, T-O-W-N-E-S, which is a tiny little uh, vintage fashion shop in Berlin. And she specializes in, I think, Helmut Lang and Margiela and Comme Garçon and Yoji and stuff. Popped in there. I was in Berlin to profile O32C for GQ Style. And Mark Goring, um, I was like, where should I shop in Berlin? And he was like, oh, nowhere. <laughs> and then he was like, well, go see Towns. Go see you know, this like pretty cool vintage shop. And I went and I bought this old uh, original Helmet Lang parka, like a super simple black cotton hooded jacket. And um, it's still one of my favorite, this was years ago. And it's just one of my favorite things that I own and buying it was, was um, I, just like a more memorable experience, I think, than if, if I had just gone into like a boutique and bought something new in Berlin. Um, so anyway, I always kind of was, interested and fascinated by it. I feel like we just sort of like scratched the surface with this not we didn't more than scratch the surface here it was, it's like kind of this survey but there's there's so many um deep wormholes to go down Rachel what are your uh what are the major pieces in your closet from the fashion archives um I have a probably the most like I would say fashion archival kind of grail thing that I have is a piece from the Comme de Garçon like flat collection, which I think was from 2014 or 15. Maybe it was earlier than that, but it was the collection that she made that was all like flat, like two dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, like wool pieces. So I have a sh- I have a top that I got from that collection, which is like from a sample sale, and it's like a bubblegum pink color. Um, I have a couple of like old weird Comme de Garçon stuff that I've gotten like at sample sales and then at this um, deer at this store Deer Rivington that used to be on the Lower East Side. I think they reopened like a couple of years ago in Soho, but I haven't been to their new store. Mm. But they've always had like a lot of like weird old Yoji and like uh, a ton of Comme de Garçon. I have like, I don't know, I have like a jacket from, this is something I bought new, a jacket from like Anne de Mulemeester's last collection. 
I don't know. I mean, I have things like, I think it's pretty, like, I don't, I have some vintage things, but I don't, I buy vintage stuff that I like. Like, I'm not like super like archival-y in that sort yeah. of way. Not They're more about, like, no. yeah, I'm not, I mean, I could see myself doing that, but I, I was like, oh, I want like a Yoji kimono skirt. So I like got that new. I didn't buy in like, like a wrap kind of kimono skirt. Mm-hmm. Another thing um, that um, I sort of, another thing that just became apparent in doing this story and anyone who spends time on like Grailed and eBay, there's a huge amount of vintage designer clothing on the secondary market. And not just like from like the consignment stores that sort of do some price gouging. Like you can easily for less than a hundred bucks, pick up like a nice sweater from, you know, from Yoji or from Isimiyaki or for Comme des Garçons on Grailed or eBay. And I strongly encourage, yeah, I just strongly encourage that sort of like, when you have that itch that you just need a thing like, oh, I need a sweater vest or, oh, I need this kind of cardigan or like pleated trousers or something. Like just do some vintage Isimiyaki or Comme des Garçons or whatever searches. Armani. Because, oh yeah, Armani is a fucking great one. That's a whole other a whole other world. Um, vintage Armani is so good, but like you'll find a ton of good stuff that's not crazy expensive, and you have to be careful about like, like make sure you figure out what the material is and what the quality is, and you know all the normal stuff you would do and sizing and whatnot. But um, there's so much good stuff to be found out there for like good prices, and you can find pieces for like crazy good deals because it's not a yeah. super like oversaturated. I don't think it's yet a super oversaturated market, these markets, you know, like it's harder to come by a rare valuable pair of Levi's than it is a rare valuable like Yoji sweater. I think they're also, yeah, they're also, um, that's certainly true. And I think also that there are all of these sort of brands from that period that you're talking about that have yet to be sort of like rediscovered. Um, definitely. So like, like not just like kind of our like Armani is one, but uh, like I've been looking a lot over the past couple of weeks at Zuli Bet, mm-hmm. which is like it's like so extremely cool and very actually Marine Sare esque, um, and that's something that I'm like wow, it's kind of blows. I mean, he's still designing now, and he actually showed kind of a comeback collection in Paris, I guess a month ago at this point, but his stuff is like so. Uh, like if you like, you know, Gautier and uh, Marine Serre and that kind of like weird, bold, like really out there kind of uh, stuff, like he's he's an awesome designer to get into and someone that like hasn't been like tapped into. It's sort of like the art market, you know, it's like you're looking for yeah. these like undiscovered or underappreciated in their moment kind of designers. I found it interesting to um, just as I've been like poking around some of these um, Instagrams and online stores that Noah sourced um, a lot of the stuff that we photograph for the story from to see like who, you know, what like recent collections seem to be floating around in these um, archival fashion uh, stores, like the things that like basically like what are they investing in and collecting Yeah, um, and basically it, like predicting what, what do they predict are going to be like, you know, archival like fashion level designers of today yeah. Um, and like Craig Green, um, always kind of comes up. Yeah. Kiko is another yeah, one. Yeah. Um, those two seem to be like the most, the Kiko yeah. Stussy collection that he did in particular is like, you know, the sweatshirts, you can't really find one for less than like a thousand dollars. 
Yeah. Even the t-shirts, it's crazy. Kiko and Craig Green have strong secondary markets, especially Craig Green's early collections. And um, yeah, that's true. Those That's a good indicator. I'm done talking about that. Should we do some vibes? Should we hang up? What do you guys want to do? Let's do some quick, let's do quick vibes. All right, I'll start with a vibe that's going to be the most obvious vibe in the world. Everyone's going to hate hearing because I'm so re- repetitive, but um, Evan Canori's collaboration with Lady White is, it's the stuff. I'm wearing the hoodie right now. He did just t-shirt, pocket tees and hoodies, four colors of each. I don't know, half cotton, half hemp. They're sort of like uh, slubby and super washed and, and uh, wide, good, good roomy, relaxed fits. Uh, priced right. Lady White dropped him and like kind of sold out of everything really fast. I don't know if he's going to get more or uh, I think there's some sizes left still, but I know Evan's stuff gets a little pricey, but the Lady White collab is killer and Lady White is just really good sweats and tees. I think we've, uh, you know, whatever. Is it the perfect hoodie that Kanye has been looking for? Yeah, I think so. It says a huge hood. So the hoodie, the whole hoodie. (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) The hoodie is a custom pattern that, that um, Evan made. So Evan's into giant hoods. Yeah, I think it's probably the perfect hoodie. I don't know. What is – I didn't re, I didn't get around to reading that big Kanye thing in um, Wall Street Journal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was from – yeah, he – it sort of starts with his, like, he discovers this need within himself to, like, create the perfect hoodie. Yeah. Which would be at any- Costco. Right, right. I, I saw that, but did he say anything about what it what he thought it would should be? He never really got there. I mean, he he like put the thing on hold and then restarted again. I think the the general idea was like thick, cropped, and in like those those perfect like sandy colors that he does. Yeah, earth tones. And he wanted it to be cheap and sold at Costco. I'm down. I bet he could do it. He's made good hoodies in the past. I think that huge hood on the Canori Lady White thing is brilliant like every time i'm like on a plane or like need to sleep or something like in a you know i like need the hood to be bigger oh yeah this comes over your eyes i mean yeah i'm for real though i'm not just gassing up a homie like this is this is the collab this is the stuff this is the the real goods all right somebody else do another vibe tiger king okay yeah go (laughs) tiger king tiger king i never i feel like i every time i see people on Twitter talking about a Netflix series. I'm always like, fuck that shit. I'm not going to watch it. Uh, I started watching Tiger King. It's, it's pretty good. It's like worth like, you know, what else are you, what else are you doing? Like watch, just like watch Tiger King. It's fucking hilarious. How much of it have you seen? I've seen three episodes. It's about, it's about these like various like contending factions of like polyamorous, um, exotic cat collectors and there's like murder and there's betrayal and they're fits uh, too aren't there, there fits? Are f- and there are fits yeah <laughs> the sort of protagonist the, well not protagonist the anti-hero of the whole thing joe exotic is like low-key a fit god um, his name's joe exotic he has yeah, two his joe name is joe exotic. exotic he has a bleach blonde uh uh a bleach blonde mullet, uh, mullet. he has two yeah. husbands um, he has like eight piercings in one ear, like eight like rings, which is sick. Um, and he has these like these like homemade looking like Joe Exotic uh, hoodies that look like they could have been like spray painted at a bar mitzvah or like sold a cafe forgot or something. They're so sick. 
Sick. Very inspirational stuff. Go ahead, Rachel. This is my, my, my turn. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, definitely um, your turn. My my vibe is the Joni Mitchell album, Hedgera. Wow. Which is a really deep, I mean, it's super vibey. Uh, the, the best thing about it is that she worked with this, like, uh, bassist named Jacko Pastorius, which is an incredible name, and who's like kind of a famous bassist, like if you know about bassists, which I'm sure all of our listeners do. And uh, Jacko Pastorius was famous for playing the fretless bass, which is the Seinfeld bass. <laughs> like, like, yeah. okay, so that's the bass that's played on this album. And you, you, if I think if you know that, it really adds something to the experience, but it's like every song is kind kind of written in this like almost like epistolary sort of style and it sort of feels like she's traveling from like hotel to hotel and like driving across America um and it's very like uh spare and weird and kind of jazzy and it's not that kind of um you know sort of soulful like hippie-ish Joni Mitchell stuff it's Mm -hmm. like after that it feels like a little more like sophisticated and bizarre very good really good like one thing I've been kind of getting into is like sitting down and listening to like a whole album which is like what I did when I was in high school and like now I have all this like free time at night so I've been doing that and this is like I've done that for the past three nights and it's been fantastic amazing all right I'm calling it unless anybody has more vibes I have one but it's so you said it's a depressing it's, uh, vibe. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's depressing. It's the films of Kelly Reichardt, who um, mm-hmm. she made that movie First Cow that people have been talking about lately, and she made a movie. She's made many movies. She made one called Old Joy that Will Oldham is in. But uh, I hadn't seen too many of her films, so I just watched Wendy and Lucy, which is like a super sad story about Michelle Williams like losing her dog. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> And then uh, this really amazing kind of period piece called Meek's Cutoff that's about um, early American settlers like making their way across the desert and shit gets Sick. pretty dire. And um, Meek's Cutoff is is like incredible and is worth, it's slow and beautiful and, um, and, and worth a watch. But Wendy and Lucy was too sad for the current moment. So, but Kelly Reichardt's amazing. I mean, she's like really, I think sort of a visionary director and i can't wait to see first cow sam i wish i could snuggle under that hermes blanket with you right now you're welcome anytime noah can i get in trouble over. do we still have an hr department is yeah. do we still work for <laughs> what's going on here i haven't been in a content tower in so long i feel like i'm really losing sight of my you know my place in the world i haven't showered in a week just kidding i showered daily all right, 87, 87 episodes of Corporate Lunch. We we sign, we log in here and we speak to you about how we feel and how we think you should feel for you and for us to feel better. How you should feel. And in times like this, you should tell a friend to enjoy Corporate Lunch with you. Listen with your family. Have the family gather around the radio. These are and, fireside uh, chats. And... Um, and come back for the next episode which we'll do just like we did this one be safe